0: You're listening to The Grindstone, a philosophy podcast from Purdue University. What's up, everybody? You're listening to The Grindstone podcast, the official podcast of the Department of Philosophy here at Purdue University. I'm your host, Matthew Kroll. I'm the Academic Programs Manager here in the Department of Philosophy. Uh, And today marks the beginning of Season 2, if you will, of the Grindstone podcast. Uh, This is the first of six talks from PatFest, which was a celebration of the career of Dr. Patricia Kurd, who retired from our department uh, this past spring. The first talk marks sort of a mini-series, if you will, of talks from PatFest that were, in one sense or another, um, either directly dealing with Plato's Republic or addressing something that is from this period of Plato's career, which I think is a fair way to say it. But first, let me introduce my guest uh, in studio today, is postdoctoral research associate here in the Department of Philosophy at Purdue, Michael Augustine. Michael, thanks for being here.
1: Happy to be here, Matthew.
0: And so what Michael will be doing over these next six episodes is uh, basically helping introduce the speakers um, and the talks. Michael was the main engine behind organizing PatFest, but he is also an ancient philosopher in his own right. So Michael, thanks again for being here. Uh, The first talk I believe that we're posting today is by Dr. Vanessa DeHarvin.
1: So Professor de Harvin is at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, and the title of her talk at the conference was Plato, the Last Pre-Socratic. It concerned a stretch of argumentation at the end of Book 5 of Plato's Republic, directed at The Lovers of Sights and Sounds.
0: So the lovers of sights and sounds, that's an interesting phrase. Uh, Can you say more about that? Who are the lovers of sights and sounds, and how are they characterized in this part of the Republic?
1: So the lovers of sights and sounds are described as those who like beautiful colors, sounds, shapes, and everything fashioned out of them, but their thought is unable to see and embrace the nature of the beautiful itself. Hmm. They only see particular beautiful things and appreciate particular beautiful things they don't see what beauty really is
0: so in a sense they see things in the world and find them beautiful but they don't have a deeper sense of what you know beauty itself is like the sort of general idea of beauty or something like this exactly exactly would I have gotten an A on an exam if I said that? <laughs> <laughs> Be honest. No, I will tell you now, listeners, he shook his head at me. So, yeah. Um, no, <laughs> no. this is really interesting, though, and I should say I loved Vanessa's talk because of her presentational style, and I think that will really come through in this podcast. I agree. Um, she had a great communicative, very oratory um, and... and um, what's the word, extemporaneous style that really came through. Okay, so in this part of the Republic, uh, Plato is concerned with the lovers of sights and sounds and their lack of capacity to appreciate the beautiful.
1: Right, and one interesting thing about this stretch of argumentation directed at the lovers of sights and sounds is that it's traditionally been taken to show that Plato thinks you just can't have knowledge of the sensible world. If you're going to be able to have knowledge of anything at all, it's going to be of things in what we might call the intelligible realm. And what Vanessa wants to argue in this paper is that this is not the case. There's a way you can read the stretch of argumentation directed at the lovers of sights and sounds, which although it sets knowledge and opinion over different objects, it doesn't preclude knowledge of the sensible world.
0: And so the sensible world, just to make sense of this, if you will, um, is like the physical world that we perceive around us or something like that, what our senses can take in. That's
1: exactly right. It's the flowers outside. It's the clouds in the sky. It's everything around us that we're uh, coming into contact with through sense perception.
0: Sorry to put you on the spot here. I realize this is probably a difficult thing to characterize, but what then would be the difference uh, between you know, the sensible world and things in the intelligible world?
1: Well, one of the differences is going to be how we have access to their respective objects. So I'm going to have access to the texture of this table through touch, the smell of the bread through my nose, whereas I'm going to have access to things like the nature of beauty through reason. So it's going to be different powers, if you will, that determine how it is that I can access different objects.
0: Nice. Awesome. And so real quick, just before we get into the talk, what was the title again?
1: The talk is Plato, the Last Pre-Socratic, Remarks on Republic Five in honor of Zeno at Purdue, which is Pat Kurd's email address. <laughs>
0: <laughs> nice. All right, everybody. Enjoy the talk, and we'll be back with the next episode. Thanks.
2: Okay, thank you so much, um, and thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you for organizing. Pat, thank you for being Pat. Um, so uh, one thing people may not know is that I first met Pat when I was a graduate student at UC Berkeley, and we had I was organizing this working group between philosophy and classics, and every year we would have a weekend workshop, and we had decided that we wanted this weekend of that particular year, which I think was 2011, um, to be with Pat to learn about Parmenides. And so I organized that and Pat came out, and we became fast friends. And I'm just ever so grateful for your continued guidance and support. Um, so as everybody knows, um, Pat's interpretation of Parmenides um, as a predicational monist has been tremendously influential. Um, tipping the sacred cow of numerical monism, if you will, in favor of a view much more in line with Plato. And one thing I've been realizing is that um, since we've gathered here, many sacred cows have been tipped actually, or have been tried to be, we have tried to tip many sacred cows. Um, So Dan Frank was telling us that um, the superhuman is among the virtuous, for example. Um, And Alexander Nehemas told us there's no regress in the third man regress. Um, And Richard McKeerhan told us that um, we have a one world Parmenides who puts reason and the senses together on a similar or comparable footing. Um, And from Carl Huffman, we heard about Pythagoreans who don't think about number or metempsychosis. Um, So anyway, in a similar spirit, um, I'm going to try and tip a sacred cow of my own, um, namely the idea that Plato is in fact committed to a two-worlds epistemology such that there is no knowledge of the sensible world, and to show that Plato really is, as Pat has put it, and Alexander as well, the last pre-Socratic. Okay, so um, I should mention also, this paper um, is one that I've been working on for a long time, it's gone through various iterations. It'll be familiar to some of you who were in Pat's class last, some, uh, last year, about the same time, and also to others who have read this even a long time ago, an ancestor of this paper. Um, so I am eager to hear what people have to say about this suggestion. Okay, so, um, The End of Republic Five is a, can everybody hear me in the back? A little more? Okay, no, I can can do it. Um, Okay, so The End of Republic Five is a locus classicus for the characterization of Plato as an impossible realist, an impossible rationalist, so committed to forms that he forgoes all knowledge of the sensible world. And scholars have tried to resist this result in various ways, usually by finding Socrates arguing fallaciously in the argument directed at the lovers of sights and sounds, or in violation of a dialectical requirement that he use only premises that the sight lovers endorse, or even um, arguing himself from premises that he does not endorse to those that he does. I'm going to argue that we can stand by a so-called objects analysis of the argument directed to the lovers of sights and sounds, which sets knowledge and opinion over different objects, namely forms and sensibles, um, but without precluding knowledge of the sensible world. The mistake ingrained in in the tradition and the sacred cow that I am going to try and tip is the idea that sensible particulars themselves, say the Parthenon or this robe are the objects of opinion as opposed to, and maybe this is friendly to Richard's suggestion of this morning, as opposed to sensible particulars understood or considered only in terms of their sensible properties, their shapes and colors. So setting knowledge over the forms and opinion over sensibles is not a move to another world or to some sort of ineffable form gazing, but a change in perspective on this one world. Um, Dorothea Freda um, has argued for a very this-worldly interpretation of forms, and so I'm gonna read you a little piece of what she says in a paper called What the Body's Eye Tells the Mind's Eye. If we disregard traditional presuppositions about Plato's metaphysics and epistemology, there is a quite simple and trivial explanation for the claim that the senses do not tell us the truth about the nature of health, tallness, or strength. Indeed, no sensory evidence will tell us what they are. Of course we do not see, hear, or feel the nature of sickness or health. We already have to know what health is, i.e. the harmonious equilibrium of all functions in a live organism, to be able to employ our senses in questions of health or illness. Whether the hue of a person's skin is a healthy flush or the indication of an unhealthy temperature is not for the eyes to tell us. So in fact, um, I think that Socrates' analogy with dreaming and waking that comes just before the argument directed at the sight lovers tells us as much. And I'm going to endeavor to show that it is of a piece with the argument that follows. So uh, I'm going to turn now to this analogy with dreaming and waking. This is, as I see it, a forecast to Glaucon of what's going to come. And this argument or this discussion in advance has been relatively neglected in the literature, but I think that it is important and that we should pay attention to it for at least three reasons. One is that it introduces to us the one over many apparatus, or some other better phrase that you can tell me to use. I don't really like it, but just it's introducing us to the idea of the forms and this one and the many. So um, I'll read you this first bit of text. And indeed, about the just and the unjust and good and bad and about all the forms, the account is the same, that each is on the one hand itself one And on the other hand, they all appear to be many, manifesting themselves all over the place, everywhere, in association with actions, bodies, and each other. So notice this is um, given to us in very this-worldly terms. Forms are manifesting themselves all over the place, and they're doing it in association with actions and bodies and each other. So this is all happening here and now, and it's really rather a messy affair. But it's here. Okay, the second reason um, that I think that this preliminary conversation is so important is that it gives us some insight into who the sight lovers are. A certain preliminary diagnosis. So I'll read you the next bit of text here. The lovers of sights and sounds anywhere embrace beautiful sounds and colors, and shapes and all things crafted out of them, but their thought is unable to see and embrace the nature of the beautiful itself. So notice, it's explicit here. Their thought, their dianoia, is set over colors, shapes, and sounds, sensible or observable properties. This much is explicit. And I think that what we're being given here is the famous pola, ta pola kala, the many beautifuls. I think that's what we're being told here already. That's what they think about. Um, On a side note, I should say there's a recent paper by um, Connie Meinwald arguing that the sight lovers ought not to be thought of as mere esthetes. Um, But instead, the nature of the fine in question is sort of a moral fineness and that they're rather popular moralizers rather than mere esthetes. And I think that that's right. And even though I'm going to continue to speak in the language of colors, shapes, and sounds, all of that language is equally applicable to this broader point. So colors cross, for example, can just as well be rendered as complexions or appearances. And schemata can be shapes, but also fashions, means, airs, fine manners. And likewise, phonas, sounds, can be voices or speeches. So everything I'm saying, although I I will continue to say it in the basic language of colors, shapes, and sounds, I do think can be applied more broadly. Okay. next in the text. Then, so more about the sight lever. The one who believes in beautiful things, okay, but again I put in the word things with some reluctance. We've got pragmata, but it's sort of the one who believes in um, concrete cases of beauty, say, but neither believes in the beautiful itself nor, if someone should lead him to awareness of it, is able to follow, does he seem to you to be living awake or asleep? But consider whether dreaming isn't this, whether asleep or awake to take a likeness to be what is not a likeness, but that thing itself that it resembles. Okay. So these people are being described as those who recognize only particular or concrete cases of F. And more specifically, they reject the forms. That's what it is to be a sight lover, is to reject that there is a one over the many. You deny the existence of forms. And so when somebody asks you, what is F, what is fine, you're gonna say, the Parthenon, this robe, very beautiful. And then when somebody wants to know why, you're going to say, well, these fine angles or purple. And that's going to be your answer. There's nothing further to give. Now, the dreaming. What is this dreaming about? The dreaming is to take a likeness or an instance to be what it resembles, namely the form. So what else can we say about this? Um, maybe one way to think of it is as a conflation of what is F, as a matter of fact, say the Parthenon, with what F is. Or what F names with what is named after F, as Alexander has put it. Um, So we're being told quite a lot already in this introductory conversation. That's what I'm trying to call out. Okay, moving on now to the philosopher. But what about the one who, being the opposite of these, takes the beautiful itself to be something, and can see clearly both it and those things participating in it, and neither believes the things that participate are it, nor that it is the things that participate in it. Now again, does this person seem to you to be living awake or dreaming? He is very much awake. Okay, so obviously the philosopher is characterized by recognizing and endorsing that there are forms, but that's not really all there is to it. What the philosopher does, the prescription that we're getting for the philosopher's waking knowledge, is that the philosopher sees it, the form, and its participants, and keeps them straight, does not confuse them with each other. And this, as we've seen, is no small task given that the forms are manifesting themselves all over the place in association with actions and bodies and each other. So being awake is not mere form gazing. It's a matter of distinguishing F itself and its participants. And that can only really be something that we're called on to do if the forms are here and now and happening in the world around us. And in fact, this language of dreaming and waking and all of these themes recur throughout the middle books in um, book six in The Divided Line and in book seven. So I'm gonna read for you um, a little piece of nettleship, um, who is sometimes overlooked, but I think actually a very valuable resource. So Nettleship, in talking about the divided line in book six, says this. When we speak about the objects of the mind's thought in its different stages, we should divest ourselves of the notion that they represent four different classes of real objects. They only represent four different views of the world or different aspects of the same objects. For what we call the same object has very different aspects to different people. For example, the scientific botanist and the person who knows no botany may see the same flower as far as the eyes go, but they understand it in totally different ways. To the former, it is an image of all botanical laws. Plato is anxious throughout to emphasize the difference between these views of things. They differ in degree of superficiality and profundity, as well as of obscurity and luminousness. This means we may regard progress in knowledge as a progress from the most superficial to the most penetrating view of things. So this is um, the perspective that I'm going to press, um, and we see this being put in the very same terms in Book Seven. This is um, 520 C2 to D1. Four. Uh, so the. Philosophers are having um, their descent back down into the cave described to them. For having gotten used to the obscurities back down in the cave, you will see vastly better than those who are there. And you will know each of the images for what it is and that of which it is an image because you have seen the truth about those things that are fine and just and good. And so for us and for you, the city will be governed by people who are awake rather than dreaming, like many cities today that are governed by those who are shadow boxing and form factions against one another overruling as though it were some great good." A lot of people running for president right now, for example. Okay. Um, So that is um, what I want to say about the introductory conversation. I'm going to go to page two of the handout now. And my suggestion is going to be that what follows, the argument that follows, is an elucidation of this dreaming and waking analogy. And in fact, that we can think of this dreaming and waking, we can use this um, and what we've been told as a sort of a key for understanding what's going on in the argument that follows. So Socrates asks, what if the one we say opines but does not know should be angry with us and disputes what we say as untrue? Will we somehow be able to console and gently persuade him while disguising the fact that he is not of sound mind? So this gives us, of course, the conclusion toward which the next argument is also going to argue. Um, And I take it that this gentle persuasion is going to consist specifically in a non-fallacious argument from mutually agreeable premises. In other words, I take it that the dialectical requirement that you not use premises that the interlocutor doesn't agree to is in effect not only for the sight lover, but in fact also for Socrates. And that what we get is a sort of double entendre in the argument that follows. Each is going to hear the argument and agree to the premises for their own reasons. Now, the order of exposition will be a little bit unorthodox. That's part of what it is to be hiding from the sight lover, that he is not of sound mind. Um, But that does not make it fallacious. In fact, I think it comes out perfectly valid. So um, another preliminary before we turn to the structure of the argument is that I take what is to be understood in all three of the going senses, the dominant senses at once. The veridical, the predicative, and the existential. So as those of you who are familiar with this literature will know, there's great debate over which, which sense of the SD is in play here. And um, as Charles Kahn has argued, um, the pre-Socratic esti is an over-determined este that has all three senses going at once. So as he puts it, I suggest that for both Parmenides and Plato, the veridical esti and Toan, what is the case, be understood as a conjunction of X exists and X is F for unspecified values of X and F, so that the veridical unfolds naturally and non fallaciously into the existential plus the incomplete copula. Um, So I'm gonna give you an example, I'm gonna just read you through the first premise of the argument and how this will be heard um, by both parties in all three senses and then I will not do that for the whole argument but I'll just give you this sample here. So the first premise of the argument directed at the sight lover um, which begins at 476 E4 is this. One who knows, knows something that is Not nothing or something that is not, because what is not cannot be known. So, by the way, I'm also not going to call out every single time. It's totally clear that Parmenides is in the background of this. I think this has been amply established, but, like, it really is going on. Um, Okay, so one who knows knows in the first case what is true. In the veridical sense, the premise is un- uncontroversial, both as how the world really is, what is truly the case, and as a description we give of it, what is said truly. Who could really disagree that knowledge should get it right? That's gonna come out true both for the sight lever and for Socrates. Now the predicative sense, one who knows knows what is F. On the predicative reading too, the sight lovers have no issue with the premise since they take themselves to know what is fine. The Parthenon, a robe. And why? This fine angle, that bright color. What they embrace, as we have already been told, are these sensible properties. The sight lovers are therefore consistently deaf to hearing what is fine, the question what is fine, as a request for an account of the intelligible one itself. They hear only a request for the many instances and multifarious ways of being fine. But as long as the premise does not require hearing what is F as a request for the one that is common to all and only cases of F, then the dialectical requirement is not violated. Socrates agrees to this premise for his reasons and the sight lovers for theirs. And then finally, the existential sense, there is also no reason for the sight lovers to worry about saying that knowledge is of what exists, since they rightly take the existence of their many colors, shapes, and sounds to be unproblematic. Socrates, of course, takes the forms to answer to the existential reading of what is, but this makes no difference to the shared dialectic. Socrates has the sight lovers' number. He knows what he is proposing to them and remains not you know and does not violate their understanding even if at the very same time he's giving an understanding of the premises that is differently heard by the initiates. Okay so finally last preliminary here um, the Parthenon is beautiful the sentence the Parthenon is beautiful understood from Socrates perspective I take this to mean that the Parthenon's sensible properties, the colors, shapes, and sounds, really are arranged such that they instantiate beauty. So it's true that the Parthenon is beautiful because of its shapes and colors, but not true that the Parthenon or its sensible properties constitute an answer to what is F, as indeed no instance ever does. Um, And this I propose that we understand on the model of the Phaedo. So I'm going to read you this famous passage. I never thought that Anaxagoras, who said those things were directed by mind, would bring in any other cause for them than that it was best for them to be as they are. This wonderful hope was dashed as I went on reading and saw that the man made no use of mind, nor gave it any responsibility for the management of things, but mentioned as causes air and ether and water and many other strange things. That seemed to me much like saying that Socrates' actions are all due to his mind and then in trying to tell the causes of everything I do to say that the reason I'm sitting here is because my body consists of bones and sinews and other such causes for my talking to you, sounds and air and hearing and a thousand other such things, but he would neglect the true causes. Okay, and here's the point. To call those things causes is too absurd. If someone said that without bones and sinews and all such things, I should not be able to do what I had decided, he would be right. But surely to say they are the cause of what I do and not that I have chosen the best course, even though I act with my mind, is to speak very lazily and carelessly. So I take it that um, what's going on with the sight lover and part of what we've already been told in the opening conversation is that they are conflating material causes for true causes And, um, and using their senses in the place of their intellect. So I think it's gonna come out perfectly true that if all you ever do is think about sensible or observable properties, then for sure, you're only ever gonna get opinion or doxa. Um, And that's precisely the sort of thing that Socrates is mocking in book seven. Here's another passage I'm going to read you. um, When he wages his lively and evocative complaint that the way those professing to teach philosophy today, you know, people who might be confused with lovers of learning, say, um, handle astronomy, that this way of handling astronomy makes the soul look downward rather than upward where a literal understanding of up and down is fiercely parodied. Um, And this is 529A9 to C2. You seem to me to help yourself to no lowbrow conception of the study of things on high. For even if someone looking at ornamentation on the ceiling by lifting his head up high should examine something closely, you run the risk of supposing that he studies by the understanding but not by the eyes. Perhaps then you suppose finally and I foolishly. But for I, again, am unable to consider any learning as making the soul look up, other than that which would be about what is and the invisible. And whenever someone tries to learn something of the sensibles by gaping upward or squinting down, I say that neither does he learn anything then for there is no knowledge of such things, nor is his soul looking up but down even if he were to learn by floating on his back on land or on sea. Okay. So I'm gonna turn now to the structure of the argument. And again, I take it that this argument is an unfolding from the conversation with Glaucon and the order of presentation will be a little bit unorthodox, but that's to be explained by the fact that we're trying to hide from the sight lover that he is not of sound mind. So Socrates is at some level trapping the sight lover, but not by fallacy. Okay, so the first premise is what I call the crucial conditional, and here it is. If something were such as to be and not be, it would not be the object of knowledge, because knowledge is set over what is completely, nor of ignorance, which is set over what is completely not, but of some intermediate power between them. What I wanna emphasize about this first premise is that what is hypothesized is the intermediate object. It's not the power, but the object. So um, the premises that I've summarized here as number one read as follows. If something were such as to be and to not be, it would lie between what purely is and what again in no way is. Therefore, knowledge being set over what is and ignorance of necessity over what is not, we must also seek something intermediate between ignorance and knowledge set over this intermediate if there is such a thing. And so the if there is such a thing applies to if there is an intermediate object such as both to be and to not be. Okay, second premise. Little strange, but what the second premise establishes is the consequent of this conditional. Um, again, it's a little odd as an order of exposition. It's not how you would do it if you were teaching logic and doing a proof, um, but this is a dialectical strategy. And um, so it's a little weird, but we're hiding from the sight lover that he is not of sound mind. And one thing I want to return to at the end is the question why Socrates is so sure that this um, antecedent is going to be easily and automatically conceded. Why he's so confident in leaving that to to be the very last premise. But in the meantime, let's see how this goes. So um, the premises that I have summarized as A here um, read as follows. Opinion and knowledge are different powers. Knowledge and opinion are set over different things according to the power of each. Therefore, knowledge is by nature set over what is to know it as it is. On the other hand, it's necessary to be more explicit. So this, therefore, this inference, I take to be licensed by what I'm calling the power principle. Um, and that power principle has not been given yet. That's why, that's precisely why he says it's necessary to be more explicit. It's what's going to come next. Um, and I take it that this power principle should be understood in the strongest sense as a biconditional that A change in power entails a change both in the work that it does and its object, what it's set over. And if you have one in the same power, it will have the same object and the same work. So, change in any one of those three—the power, the work, or the object—will entail a change in the other two. Now, again. The the recent tradition trying to resist the result that there's no knowledge of the sensible world has focused here on this objects analysis and they've tried to pry apart these elements of the power principle. So for example, some people say, oh, well, you know, normatively knowledge, the power of knowledge really should be applied to forms, but you can apply it to the sensible world, so it's okay. Um, That's the sort of move that people have tried to make. And what I'm endeavoring to do in this portion of the paper is to block that move and to show that, in effect, the object's analysis is tight, and this is not the way to resist the argument. The way to resist the argument is by the road of, of what the pola kala, what the many finds are. Um, okay. So the, um, the reading that I'm offering is gonna show that this full biconditional is intended by Socrates. So the, um, what comes next, um, with Socrates now being more explicit, right, he's gently unfolding everything that he has in mind, um, is the power principle part one. So um, one sees in a power neither any color, nor shape, nor anything of the sort, like one does in many other things, by which one sometimes distinguishes for oneself some things from others. But in the case of a power, one sees only that over which it is set and the work it does. And in virtue of this, each of these is called a power. And being set over the same thing and doing the same work, I call it the same. But being set over a different thing and doing different work, I call it another. Okay, so um, sight and hearing, are an uncontroversial entry into this topic, into the notion of a power. Um, it's also gonna be especially apt for the lovers of sights and sounds, right? But it's, um, it's useful, it's, it's not telling us anything about knowledge, being acquaintance, or anything like that. It's really just giving us the very straightforward point that what you, what you do with the power of sight is seeing, and what you do that too is colors. And what you do with the power of hearing is hearing. And you do that to sounds, and you don't see sounds and you don't hear colors unless some, you've got some wires crossed. Okay, um, and so what we have is this first half of the power principle, according to which a change in object and a change in the work entails a change in power. Having the same object and the same work entails that you have the same power. Now, again, Here is where we find this two worlds epistemology problem. Crombie, for example, argues that Plato has it all wrong because he's arguing that if you can see a pear, then you can't taste a pear. And this is scandalous. Um, It is technically still open at this juncture of the argument to separate the work from the work or the power from the object. And that is indeed where the tradition, the recent tradition resisting the result has focused their energy. But part two closes that avenue and establishes the biconditional altogether. So here's what we have next. Knowledge and opinion are distinct powers. Knowledge being the strongest of all powers and opinion, the ability to opine because the one is fallible and the other infallible. So I take that what we're being shown here is that Socrates is committed to a change in work, namely the one being fallible and the other infallible, that's the difference in work, entailing that you have a different power. Next, then necessarily each of them by nature is set over different things, having the capacity to do something different. Now I take it that what we have here is a commitment to a change in power entailing a change in work. In other words, A, necessarily each of them by nature, being different powers, entails a change in work, namely having the capacity to do something different. And that clause that I've lettered C here, that clause C, is what justifies B, they're being set over different things. So what we see here is Socrates being committed to a change in power entailing a change in the work that the thing does and the change in work entailing a change in the object. So what we have at this point is um, one half of the biconditional, namely that a change in power entails a change in work and a change in object. And now we need the other bit of it, namely that uh, um, having the same power entails having both the same object and the same work. So I'm on to page three now. Um, knowledge, I take it, is set over what is to know it as it is. Now this is actually just a reiteration of premise 2a that I gave you above, but that was precisely the premise where he said it was necessary to be more explicit. And now that he's done all of this, he's reiterating this premise to signal specifically that um, having the same power entails the sameness of the object and the sameness of the work. So knowledge, the power, is set over what is to know it as it is. That's the work that it does. And this was the one missing piece. So now what he does in the argument is begin drawing conclusions. We've got the objects analysis fully out on the table um, and he begins to apply it to what we know so far. So this is my um, little Roman numeral four here. Therefore, given what we agreed, it is impossible that knowledge know the very same thing as what opinion opines because different powers by nature are set over different things, and knowledge and opinion are different powers. Um, So this is an application of the power principle to as much information as we've put out on the table so far, which isn't really very much, right? It's just the commitment to knowledge being of what is, and um, that's all we've got. But there's quite a bit that we can do with it. Um, so what remains of premise two, again, remember, this is all in the service of the second premise, um, which, is that, um, which is the consequent of the conditional that there is an intermediate power. So what remains is just to establish that opinion is intermediate between knowledge and ignorance. So um, those premises um, read as follows. Therefore, if what is knowable is what is, what is opinable is something other than what is. Okay, that makes them different from each other. Then it is impossible to opine what is not because it's impossible that one who opines brings opinion to bear over nothing. So, some, so one must opine some one thing. But surely what is not is most properly called not some one thing, but nothing. Indeed, we put ignorance of necessity over what is not and knowledge over what is. Therefore, one opines neither what is nor what is not. Therefore, it seems that opinion is neither ignorance nor knowledge. So it's p- perfectly explicit that these are different from each other. And then the very next and last step is to establish that opinion is intermediate between them. Opinion is intermediate between knowledge and ignorance because, A, it does not lie outside them, surpassing neither knowledge and clarity nor ignorance in unclarity. B, it's not darker than knowledge, but lighter than ignorance, therefore it lies in between. Okay, so all of that was in many ways the longest and most complicated part of the argument, all in service of premise two. Um, And that was the consequent of the crucial conditional. So now finally, at last, we get to this missing link, which is the antecedent Namely, there are intermediate objects such as to be and to not be. Now, it's clear that this is Socrates' dialectical strategy to leave the antecedent of the conditional for last because he keeps reiterating the crucial conditional, as I'm calling it. So he says here, so it would remain for us to find that thing participating in both being and non-being and not correctly called purely either one so that if it should ever appear, we would justly call it the opinable, setting the extremes over the extremes and the intermediates over the intermediates. So again, it's weird as an order of exposition, but, it's, but we know exactly why we're doing it. Um, so why is Socrates so confident that he can leave this for the last premise? I mean, you might think that it would be worrisome um, to leave this crucial antecedent for last. Um, And one clue that we get is this reiteration that we get of the sight lover's character. So I'm gonna read that out to you. Um, This is uh, 478E7. These things having been established, everything I just said, let me speak and the good man answer. The good man who on the one hand takes the fine itself and any form of fine itself, which always holds as it does according to the same thing, to be nothing at all, namely the sight lover. And on the other hand, who considers there to be many fine things, pola kala, that lover of sights and the one who in no way stands someone who would say that the fine is one and justice and the others likewise. Um, So notice the sight lover isn't just saying there aren't any forms, right? He's resistant specifically also to saying that there is some one thing common to all these cases. So when you ask this person, what is F? What is the fine? They're gonna say, well, many fine things. To the sight lovers, there are many ways to be fine, just, etc., and no one way that is either necessary or sufficient. Therein lies my expertise, says the sight lover. It's complicated, nuanced stuff, knowing when to choose the curved or the angular, the bright or the muted, the Lydian mode or the Ionian. Or as Gosling puts it in the article that set off this whole debate about the Polakala, he says this, Like most of us, when we think we have detected the source of strength or weakness in a play, these people would feel, and in a way, rightly, that they were finding the explanation of the beauty of this play and were on their way to a fruitful study of plays in general. But one of their discoveries will be that there are various ways of producing a successful play, various possible explanations of the success of a play, Consequently, they would be understandably impatient of someone who insisted, apparently, on asking for a single explanation. Such a request would seem unsophisticated and uneducated. Surely it must be clear to any man of intelligence who has studied the subject that the search for a single account is a wild goose chase. So I think this much is right. But Gosling has the further suggestion that the pola kala, the many finds, are ways or ways of being beautiful in the sense of being types. And I think this cannot be right, because the sight lover, after all, is somebody who is not philosophically sophisticated. The sight lover is not somebody who's gonna sit around and have a discussion about the difference between types and tokens. So I think imputing to the sight lover the idea that they're committed to types is not gonna work. Um, And David Sedley has suggested that what we see here is that the sight lovers finally come around to recognize that the sensible world is just too much in flux. I don't think that's right either. I think that's also just too sophisticated for our basic sight lover. It's not just that they're desperate for an exit, although I think that's probably true as well. Um, Really what I think is that we've already been told and we know as a matter of who the site lover is, why it is that they are committed to this premise. The answer, so how did Socrates know this last premise would be the easiest for the sight lover to endorse? The answer has already been given. In refusing to allow anyone to say that the fine is one, the sight lover has insisted not only that there are no forms, but also that no one shape, color, or sound is either necessary or sufficient for being fine. I suggest that we hear this denial that the fine is one in the robust sense caricatured above. That's what I've been trying to tell you, cries the exasperated sight lover. There is no one way to be fine, of course every fine color will other times be ugly. Of course prosecuting your father is sometimes just and sometimes not. One has to know just when to apply a bright color and when certain actions are called for, that's why I'm the expert. So ag- excuse me, agreeing that the many fine colors, shapes, and sounds are all also ugly is just the other side of denying the existence of forms. If there is no one to the many, then there is quite literally no one of the many that will be either common to all cases or always F. Thus, Socrates' dialectical genius consists in leaving this one missing link for last, knowing it would be unproblematic precisely because it is of a piece with the denial of the forms. Okay. Um, So, almost done here. Um, I think, um, what time did we start? I don't recall. A little bit after two. two. Okay, so I'm um, almost done here. I'm trying to decide if I should read you this further bit about the epistemological eunuch. Um, I think there's something also very elegant about this passage of the eunuch, and it's not just fun, (laughs) Um, it's fun also. But I think what it tells us, what it gives us is um, a considerable and artful irony that in their eagerness to affirm that there are many, both are and are not, the sight lovers cast themselves as epistemological eunuchs. The eunuch, a man who is not a man, corresponds to the sight lover, a lover of learning, who is not really a lover of learning. In refusing the forms and turning their ears away from philosophical discussion, the sight lovers cut off the power of knowledge. The eunuch saw and did not see because he has poor eyesight just as the sight lovers have true belief but not knowledge, seeing sensible but not intelligible properties and penetrating only the surface of the world. The sight lovers see not only in the most literal sense of attending to visible properties, but also in the epistemological sense that they take their cues from sense impression. Thus they see but are myopic, have true belief but not knowledge, being adrift without a criterion as they are with no account of what is good and not. Finally, what the eunuch saw was a bird that was not a bird, i.e. a bat that he took for a bird. What the sight lover sees is something fine that is not fine. An instance of fineness that is not the fine itself. Or in causal terms, a material cause that he takes for a real cause. Of course, the sight lover does not recognize all this in offering up the riddle of the eunuch. Therein lies the ironic genius of Plato. Um, Okay, so now um, the rest of the argument is merely mechanical. Um, Premise four, the sight lover embraces these intermediate objects. Um, Oh, I I forgot to read out the the actual premise, premise three. All the many beautifuls also turn out ugly. All the many just things turn out unjust. All the many pious, impious, doubles, halves, greats, smalls, light things, heavy. In short, each of the many is no more that which we call it than its opposite. No more what someone says it is than its opposite. So again, Parmenides. Okay, premise four. The sight lover embraces these intermediate objects. The conventions of the many about beauty and the others are rolling around somewhere between what is, sorry, somewhere between what is not and what purely is. So all of these many colors, shapes, and sounds are no more F than not F and called both. Therefore, the sight lover opines but does not know. Okay, virtues of the account. I'm gonna start with the last item here. Um, I think that what this reconstruction does is it shows Socrates to be arguing elegantly from mutually acceptable premises to console and gently persuade the sight lover of what has been forecast already in the analogy with dreaming and waking. And I think that this accords naturally with the text, which clearly does call for an object's analysis. I mean, it might seem also, maybe those who are less familiar with this debate, why am I spending so much time reconstructing this argument? Um, It's because people have worked so hard to resist this analysis. Um, But it really is the most natural reading of the text, according to which knowledge is of the forms and opinion is of what is sensible. But this objects analysis need not bar knowledge of the sensible world. To set opinion over the sensibles is to say that one who embraces only colors, shapes, and sounds, sensible or observable properties, can never do better than true belief. No amount of looking will get you to a theory. And to set knowledge over the forms is to change perspective, not worlds. On this, I want to read you um, this little bit from Jan Seif. Um, If a lover of beautiful sights stands in front of a painting of Helen and exclaims, she is beautiful, an uncompromising Platonist in their company would of course retort that this is nothing compared to the beauty of a geometrical construction. Another more amiable philosopher might come to the aid of the lover of sights and submit, well, with respect to her looks and as a human being, it is certainly fair to say that she is extraordinarily beautiful. If the lover of sights accepts that, they are already on the way to becoming aware of the distinction between forms and mixed instances. This more sophisticated judgment is immune against the argument from context relativity because it specifies the relevant context or respect and thus qualifies the attribution of the property in the appropriate way. It does more than just articulate a mode of appearance. It has analyzed the appearance by situating it in its context. The point about context relativity is that it's not the sensible particular that defeats knowledge, but the way in which one considers the individual. It can be perfectly true and known that Helen is beautiful when what one means by that is qualified as Seif describes, i.e. when one thinks about the individual through the lens of the one over many as the one who is awake does. There is thus no reason to deny the judgments about the sensible world are judgments about forms, even when our judgments are not explicitly or exclusively about their nature. Socrates' knowledge that Helen is beautiful is about Helen's instantiation of beauty, therefore perfectly well set over what is. Okay. So again, my point is that this one over many apparatus, as I'm calling it, does not reduce knowledge to mere form gazing, but to a firm grasp of the difference between the beautiful itself and those things participating in it. and as Pat puts it, when Plato asserts that Kalon is always one and the same because it is monoades, he must mean that no matter how many various ways of being beautiful are manifested by sensible things, there is in truth but a single nature of beauty itself that underlies them all. So... Um, I'm going to close now. I'm going to invite you to look at the last page of the handout, which is a copy of some paragraphs from um, Pat's conclusion to the book. And um, I want you to read along with this, and I'm going to read my version of it where I substitute just a few words. Um, to show, in fact, how deeply akin these accounts are and the ways in which I think that Plato can really be seen as the last pre-Socratic. Okay, this study has argued for an interpretation of Plato that makes him a pivotal figure in the development of Parmenides' philosophy. On this interpretation, Plato's concern is not to reject inquiry into the nature of the sensible world, but to reform such inquiry by formulating criteria for a successful account of what there is. The crisis at the heart of Plato's argument, being or becoming, rules out any candidate for an ultimate entity in an explanation of what there is that is subject to coming to be, passing away, or alteration of any sort. Such an entity must be a whole, complete, unchanging unity. It must be a thing that is of a single kind, monogenes. But it does not follow from this that there can be no knowledge of the sensible world. Plato's arguments allow for the manifold instantiation of fundamental predicationally unified entities that can be used to explain the world reported by the senses. The sight lovers account of the world, their doxa, is, as Socrates says, a deceptive story because they take a likeness to be what is not a likeness but that thing that it resembles. But that does not mean that any such account of the world of the senses will simply, by being such an account, be false or deceptive. The error of the sight lover's doxa is to begin with sensible properties that cannot satisfy Plato's criteria for an acceptable explanatory entity. Because shapes, colors, and sounds are neither necessary nor sufficient for being F, each is both F and not F, They cannot be whole, complete, unchanging things of a single kind. In other words, they can't be explanatory of what F is or what makes something F. But Socrates does not rule out the possibility that there could be a successful explanation of the world reported by the senses. One that does repeat the sight lovers error of thinking that what is F or what F is is no more what we call it than its opposite or rolling around somewhere between what is not and what purely is. Such an account would satisfy Plato's claims in Republic 5, that knowledge is set over what is, while explaining the world of the senses, and would be a this-worldly epistemology. Plato himself does not provide this epistemology, but his prescriptions for knowledge in the Republic and his diagnosis of the sight-lover's doxa provide a model and a standard for such an epistemology. Thank you
0: the grindstone is brought to you by the department of philosophy at purdue university and is supported by the college of liberal arts at purdue our intro and outro music is by al terity You can follow the Department of Philosophy at Purdue on Facebook at Philosophy at Purdue, on Twitter at philo, all caps, P-H-I-L-O, underscore Purdue, and on Instagram at philo, underscore Purdue.